Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Mind Control, a podcast where we explore the ins and outs of the teenage brain and learn why we act the way we do, all in order to regain control of our psyche. Let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Mind Control. Today we're going to be discussing the interesting but also potentially triggering topic of food and hunger. I won't be talking about eating disorders in this episode, but let me know if that's something you guys would like to learn about a little more later. Still, I know appetite can be a sensitive topic for some, and honestly it is for me as well. I just decided to make this one of my first episodes because there are things that I always wonder about in terms of my relationship with food. For example, Why do I always find myself eating if I'm stressed or bored? Why do I always crave snacks when working on homework after dinner? And how come it seems like everyone else has such an easy time saying no to overprocessed foods? After answering these questions, we'll talk a little bit about unhealthy trends such as food restrictions and semaglutide, also known as ozempic. Then I'll give you a few ways I started to rewire my brain, all in order to stop myself from unconsciously overeating. So starting off, let's dive into some common misconceptions. Many people think about weight in terms of a calorie in versus calorie out model, meaning if you eat the same amount of calories that you burn, you won't gain any weight. And if you're in a calorie deficit or you burn more calories than you eat, you'll lose weight and vice versa for gaining weight. Also, people believe that if someone is obese, they're making a conscious decision about eating, or if they see someone overeating, that they just don't have the willpower and the self-control to regulate what they're eating. People believe that if you're gaining weight, you lack discipline, and like I said, you just don't have the willpower to work out or eat healthy. But this simply isn't true. We're growing up in a time where the food industry invests millions of dollars in order to get people to buy more products and therefore consume more food. They do this with specific colors, specific packaging, and even modifying our food or over-processing it. There's a fundamental mismatch between our brains, our genetics, and the social environment that we live in. Food is cheap and there's so much variety You could go into a store and there's 20 different kinds of chips, there are 40 different kinds of sodas, and other sugary drinks, but the organic food that's healthy or not processed is so much more expensive than a simple frozen pizza. Think about how expensive it is to buy strawberries or get ingredients to make a well-balanced dinner. The food industry just does not make it easy for us. Our brains are fine-tuned for food scarcity, which means when we were hunter-gatherers like 12,000 years ago, we were just trying not to die. We were always asking the question, how do we get enough to eat? And simply telling people to just eat less or even telling yourself you shouldn't be doing something isn't always effective. Your rational brain may be telling you to make one decision, but your unconscious and regulatory brain from 12,000 years ago has built-in circuits that are responding to our genetic and evolutionary programming. These impulses, as well as marketing techniques, train us to overconsume. 
So here's one story about me when I was younger. I'd go on these road trips with my brother and dad, and one of our favorite places to stop on the road was McDonald's because the Happy Meals. We loved getting the little toys in the boxes and collecting them as we drove along and playing with them while we were traveling from place to place. And every time we'd open a box and see what we got, it would cause a dopamine spike in our brains. We were so excited by the idea of going to McDonald's and simultaneously, we were getting accustomed to being excited to eat the food. If we were getting a dopamine increase every time we started eating chicken nuggets or french fries, we're going to be trained to seek out those foods just whenever we want to be happy. Also, it's literally called a happy meal, but it isn't really that good for your body. Lastly, I just want to mention that differences in body fatness are mainly caused by genetics. It's like 40 to 80% of differences are based on genetics. So I'm just reminding you listeners that everyone's going to relate to this episode differently. In a study done by Linda Bartoshuk, 261 attendees in a lecture were given butterscotch candy at the beginning and a piece of prop paper at the end, which is basically this bitter tasting molecule called 6-N-Propylthiouracil. Seriously, a long name, so I'll just say prop. Anyways, they also gave everyone a questionnaire to rate the bitterness and the sweetness. It turned out the sweeter people thought the candy was, the more bitter they thought the prop paper was too. People rated the sweetness and bitterness all the way from 1 to 100 on a scale, so clearly everyone has unique sensory experiences. Another thing that's different across individuals is something called a motivational threshold. A researcher named Leonard Epstein conducted a study where he tested different people's motivational thresholds, and this basically means how hard is someone willing to work to get food. So in this study, they'll give people a snack so they're not super hungry, then ask them to complete several questions. If answered correctly, the participant will get a little piece of candy um, or a different reward like a sip of soda. The number of questions that are required to be correct before getting a high reward value food, such as a piece of candy, which high reward value basically means high calorie or high energy. And anyways, the number of questions that the participants must answer correctly continues to increase. So researchers found that different people are willing to work different amounts for food as the requirements increase. Some people maybe will answer only a few questions and then get bored and stop answering questions in order just to get a little piece of candy. Other people might continue to answer questions even as they're starting to answer 20 or 30 just for that same reward they were getting at the beginning. This is an individual trait, and it's important to understand that we all experience hunger differently. All right, so let's veer away from the McDonald's and the aisles of differently packaged chips and go back to when humans were hunters and gatherers. Imagine having to catch every piece of meat you want to eat or pick every individual berry off a bush. What happens when the bushes around you no longer have any more berries? Maybe you have to walk for miles and climb a tree to get some fruit. Obviously, this would not be easy for us now, and I'm assuming it wasn't easy then either. 
The obstacles people had to go through just in order to get a meal created a powerful disincentive for eating unless you're really hungry. So let's quickly talk about flavors. You have carbohydrates, which are starches and sugars. There's bitter, sour, salty, and protein or umami. This umami flavor is a savory flavor created by glutamate. And it tastes like meat and it's like the type of flavor you'd find in broths or meat. <laughs> when you eat things that are sweet, fatty, or savory, dopamine spikes and pushes you to want to consume more of the same food. The dopamine spike is what told our ancestors that the foods they were eating were healthy and high in energy. This also works the other way around. If you taste a berry that's bitter or a fruit that's too sour, you're able to realize that it could be dangerous or poisonous and to stay away. But just to be clear, the tastes of fat, sugar, starch, or protein are signals of high caloric density, which equals high energy. So if someone was always living in a food-scarce environment, it's clear they'd want to find high-energy foods and begin to like the related flavors. Okay, I want to talk more about this, but I also want to discuss what exact molecules in our brains or gut cause hunger. I'll do that later, but first let's continue to talk about dopamine. Dopamine is a feel-good neurotransmitter, and it's involved in reinforcing behavior. Throughout these episodes, you'll learn that we're constantly craving dopamine, and when we do get it, patterns begin to be formed. Today's world makes it super easy to get a quick dopamine spike and make yourself feel better, but some of the ways we get dopamine aren't exactly healthy. So we were just talking about flavors, and you know when you're eating something that's just so good, you can't seem to stop shoveling it into your mouth? Well, for me, that food is the sour cream and onion corn puff things from Trader Joe's. They're just so addictive. I mean, if you haven't tried them, I'd recommend, but use caution. And not that these are necessarily bad to eat, but when I get a bag, it's finished in a day. I find myself losing control and asking, why can't I stop eating these? Okay, so now onto something a little more dangerous. <laughs> Researcher Stefan Gainette talks about the process of how cocaine evolved. In South America, indigenous cultures chewed the coca leaf as a mild stimulant for many years, kind of like drinking coffee. He describes it as being a mild indulgence, but as humans realized the active ingredient of cocaine was causing dopamine to spike, they extracted it from the leaf and refined it down to create cocaine. To make it even more addictive and have a bigger dopamine spike, people made crack cocaine. And how cocaine basically works is by inhibiting your neurons from the process of reuptake of dopamine. But back to the point, people refined and refined the active ingredient and changed the mild stimulant into a life-destroying drug. So back to the corn puffs, I know we're jumping around a lot, but back to the corn puffs, the food industry has done the same thing. They've created this artificial bliss point of flavors that spikes dopamine as high as possible and causes a happy feeling. Companies have enhanced the dopamine-stimulating properties of food and made it so much more seductive to us 
And this is just something that we never would have experienced as hunter-gatherers who just eat natural, unprocessed combinations of plants and animals. By distilling specific flavors and making these foods so easy to access, we're forming habits to love these foods. It's not that the flavors are necessarily bad. For example, eating an apple is sweet. But the food industry has purified all the flavors away from the healthy parts, like water and fiber, which then makes the food less healthy. So overall, companies want you and try to get you to eat as much food as possible because that's how they make money. I mean, I'm not saying that the whole food industry is bad and out to get us, but food is certainly designed to be as appealing as possible. So bouncing back to the corn puffs from the cocaine analogy, it's got to make you think, is food and can food really be that addictive? Well, let's just think about it. Highly processed foods share the same characteristics as drugs. They have high concentrations of the active ingredient, which could be fat or refined carbohydrates. And it's shown in a study by food scientist Ashley Gerhardt that people lose control the most around highly processed foods. A study by Ashley Gerhardt from 2011 gathered 48 healthy women ranging in different ages and BMIs. Using fMRI technology, which measures blood oxygen level and therefore activity in the brain, researchers scanned their brains when the women were anticipating and receiving a chocolate milkshake. They found there were similar patterns of neural activation when drinking a milkshake as there are when people take drugs. There was activation in the reward center of the brain and reduced activity in the inhibitory regions. The inhibitory regions would be places in your brain that cause you to reflect on your choices or maybe stop making a specific impulsive decision. So anyways, even though food addiction is still up for debate within the food science community, I think it's a very real possibility, especially after considering all the similarities. All right, guess what? We're talking about dopamine. I know, some more. But first, let me tell you about calculus. So I'm taking you back a few weeks ago when I was eating dinner. My little brother was like, have you finished studying, Rachel? And I go, oh, and by the way, my brother is just a year younger than me, but he's in the same math class, so that's great. But anyways, he asked me if I had finished studying, and I go, well, yeah, I've started, but I still have tomorrow to study, right? And he says, you know the test is tomorrow morning. I, in fact, did not know that the test was the next morning, and obviously began to cram. It's clear that waiting till the last day to study isn't a good strategy, but I was just putting it off and putting it off some more until it turned out I only had the night before to study. Luckily, I was as productive as ever for about four hours, but then I started to lose steam. I wanted to keep pushing myself, so I got a cup of tea and I looked in the pantry to get some food. I spotted a bag of marshmallows, and let me tell you that I don't even like marshmallows, but I impulsively grabbed a few out of the bag. 30 minutes later, I went out to get a couple more. And after two more hours went by, and it was almost one in the morning, I'd eaten almost half the bag. And we're talking about like the big marshmallows for s'mores, you know? Yeah, it's not great. As I was getting ready for bed, I asked myself, why would I do that? 
The answer is cortisol and my inherent stress response. Let's look at it from an evolutionary perspective. Imagine you've been preparing to fight people from the neighboring town. Your adrenaline is pumping as you're preparing weapons and barricades. You see some food and immediately your survival brain kicks in, telling you you gotta eat as much as possible so you'll have the energy when you're in battle. Well, now you can compare the battle to the calculus test. When I was studying, I was stressed for the test that was coming the next day, meaning there was a spike in my cortisol, which is a stress hormone. My brain was telling me that there was an imminent threat and to eat more in order to prepare. I saw the marshmallows and after having some, I realized they were sweet and calorie dense. Another reason I was drawn back to grabbing more from the bag is because right after I ate one, I'd feel a little better. Okay, now time for dopamine. Remember how we talked about the dopamine release earlier? Well, every time I ate food, my dopamine would spike and relieve some of that stress I felt. I'd subconsciously crave that relief and continue to go back to the pantry every 30 minutes. This is the same reason you eat when you're bored. You're craving something to do, and when you eat food high in fat or sugar, dopamine is released and you feel happy and entertained. If you're bored or stressed, you might be eating as a distraction. Still, the dopamine you get is always fleeting. Its levels are unstable and unpredictable, so you have to remind yourself that a small hit of dopamine isn't going to fix the stress of a calculus test. Now, maybe you're wondering what exactly contributes to hunger on a molecular level. Or maybe not, but it's still cool how much goes into making you want to eat. In your brain, there's this structure called the hypothalamus. It maintains your body's homeostasis, which means it keeps qualities of your body in a specific range. For example, body temperature. So the hypothalamus is like a thermometer for everything, including your body fat. You can call it the lipostat, where lipo means fat. This lipostat is controlled by a hormone called leptin. Leptin is secreted by fat tissue relative to how much of it there is. Basically, the more fat, the more leptin. So you know how your body temperature is pretty stagnant throughout your life unless you get sick and your temperature goes way up, but normally your temperature will be like 98.6. Anyways, unlike temperature, the set point of fat or your regular fat level can keep going up. As people gain weight, the new normal becomes that weight. Now say someone is trying to lose weight. They lose fat and the leptin levels are lower than before due to the decrease in fat mass. Now your brain thinks, oh no, I'm starving, I gotta eat now. This starvation response makes you crave high-energy food. And this is why people normally see a gradual rebound when dieting. When listening to Guy Net talk on the Ezra Klein show, he mentions the Biggest Loser study. This was a study where people examined participants from The Biggest Loser Show, a show where people compete to try to lose the most weight. Researchers studied 16 participants, and at the end of the competition, the average weight loss was about 130 pounds or about 60 kilograms. Six years later, the average weight gain was 90 pounds or 41 kilograms. So obviously not all the weight was gained back, but the gradual weight gain was caused by their broken lipostats. It's much harder to lose weight for a sustained period of time than to gain it. Then again, it's different for all people. 
Two other things that contribute to hunger are ghrelin and GLP-1. Ghrelin is a hormone from the stomach that increases appetite. Meanwhile, GLP-1 is a peptide secreted in the intestines and the brainstem, which contributes to satiety processing, meaning it signals to you when you're full. So how many of you have found yourselves going to the kitchen to grab some food while you're studying for a test or working on some long English essay that you probably should have worked on earlier? I definitely have. So let's talk about the correlation between sleep and food. As I mentioned before with marshmallows, you're hungrier for high-calorie food. Your body is tired and you're looking for a way to stay up. Dr. Stephen Shea says, If you stay up later during a time when you're hungrier for high-energy food, you're more likely to eat. Then you store energy and get less sleep, both of which contribute to weight gain. In one of his studies, he found that there is an internal circadian rhythm for appetite and hunger. It was found that people generally feel the least hungry at 8 a.m. and the most hungry at 8 p.m. Shea says, We have a natural tendency to skip breakfast in favor of large meals in the evening. This is to help with efficient food storage. And while this may have been valuable throughout evolution, nowadays it likely contributes to the national epidemic of obesity. People store the calories they eat in the evening because we just don't spend as much energy while sleeping as we do in the morning. If you tend to stay up late, try choosing something alternative to processed sugars and fats. Going to bed earlier can also help eliminate these cravings. So that's if you're up eating late at night. What about if you don't get a lot of sleep in general? What effects does this have on what foods you choose to eat and how much you consume in general? While in one study, it was found that sleep loss prevented higher executive functioning. Your prefrontal cortex controls this higher executive function and is in charge of decision-making, complex behavior, personality, and a lot more. If you get insufficient sleep, scans show that activity in certain regions of the brain decreases. It's harder for you to evaluate food and make healthy choices when you didn't get enough sleep. Again, this leads us to tend to grab high-calorie, ultra-processed foods that we might not normally want. Okay, so look, even though research points to all the stuff I've been talking about, there's also plenty of research that shows food restriction is unhealthy. A review paper by a scientist at the University of Toronto demonstrates that self-imposed dieting and restriction usually result in binges once the food is available or maybe during emotional stress. Restricting foods altogether and labeling some as good or bad will cause more stress regarding food in the end. Instead of cutting out all sugar or fat, try to create a balanced diet. One more quick story. So my amazing volleyball coach, she's probably the person who's the most in shape that I know. I see her working out every morning and afternoon, but I also see her with snacks all the time. She has pineapple, jerky, and Lifesaver gummies in her bag at all times, and she's so generous with her food. She says food is fuel and that balance is key. With her as a role model, it feels good to eat the food I want and be both psychologically and physically healthy. Don't surround yourself by people who make you feel bad about eating the food you want. Please let this be your own journey and know that we're all a work in progress. I want to talk a little bit about what to do if you do find yourself losing control of your eating. But first, like I said before, I'll talk a little bit about semaglutide. This is a drug 
also commonly known as Ozempic, and it's a medication for diabetes. Recently, it has been talked about by the public because already thin celebrities were using it to lose even more weight. Using this drug, people can lose 15 to 18 percent of their body weight, whereas a standard weight loss program, people tend to lose 5 to 7 percent. Semaglutide works by targeting GLP-1 and makes you feel more satiated. After weekly injections and increasing the dosage, people are not as hungry. They have reduced cravings and they find food not as seductive. But in the same way people gain back weight with dieting or weight loss interventions, once stopping the injections, the weight will come right back. Body image and the influence of social media are large issues in society today, but ultimately, People are just searching for a solution through an evolutionary mismatch between our survival brain and our rational minds. So what can you do now? Start creating healthy habits and do things that make you happy. When I find that I'm losing control and doing things that make me feel worse in the long term, I like to create disincentives. Similar to how people had to walk miles to gather food, I put my cookies on a high shelf, so I have to go grab a stool, climb the stool, and get a cookie. I know that sounds pretty lazy, but sometimes I'll just grab cookies if they're sitting on a low shelf because it's easy and they taste good and they're right there. But on a high shelf, I don't really feel the need to go get the stool and then climb it to get the cookie. So use your laziness to your advantage. Also... In the past, I'll want to buy an extra bag of gummy bears because I'll save them for later. But we all know that this never works out and I'll just end up eating both bags. Or maybe you're not like me. But anyways, if I'm at the grocery store and wanting something sweet, maybe I'll buy a juice instead. Also, you could have heard this before, but it's probably not best to go grocery shopping when you're hungry. One more thing is eat from a bowl rather than the whole container. You'll make your serving size smaller and still feel as fulfilled. And if you're still hungry, just go back and get more. Try to make a list or think about your emotional triggers. If you feel yourself getting stressed, bored, or sad, find other ways to relieve those feelings. Maybe go for a walk or play with a pet or spend some time talking to friends. Finally, focus on the food that you're eating and slow down. Notice the texture and flavors. Think about how it makes you feel and how you feel five minutes afterwards. Look for packaging and marketing schemes that make you hungry and trick you into buying or into overeating. Like I said before, and my volleyball coach said, remember, balance is key. So thanks so much for listening to today's episode, and I really hope you enjoyed. As always, feel free to send me an email with feedback and questions. I hope this episode helped you learn something new about yourself and about how your brain works. Be back for the next episode where we dive into procrastination and perfectionism. Thanks for tuning in and talk soon.